This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 139, with guest Rebecca Baruki. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no-BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Kickers, how are you? Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm so glad that you are here. Hey, I have a repeat guest on today. Bex is here. She was on episode 75. Love that girl. And very excited to get into today's episode where we talk about everything from douching to grief. It is quite a roller coaster of an episode. <laughs> I think you'll like it. Let me tell you a little bit about Bex. Rebecca Baruki, founder of Bex Life and the Blist in Wellness Movement, is a mother of five, TV host, yoga and meditation guide, Hay House author, birth doula, and popular YouTuber. She also travels extensively, sharing her love for yoga, wellness, and meditation at exclusive workshops, luxury retreats, and public events. So without further ado, here is Bex. Well, hello, Bex. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I am so excited to have you on again. And you and I just talked last week because mm -hmm. I am a guest on your show for a book bonus that you have. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, your book, yes. which I'm so excited about, which I'm sure you might be a little bit excited about it. I'm a little bit weary <laughs> of, well, the, I, of the book launch thing, I but know. yeah, I'm excited. I know that this stage of the game, which which some people might not know, when it comes to especially traditional publishing, like the honeymoon, at least in my experience, like the honeymoon was over. By the time I was talking about it, I was like, I have been in bed with this book for mm -hmm. so many years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I don't even remember what's in the book anymore. I wrote it so long I ago. Either. I have to reread it just to refresh. I had to have my book out when people were interviewing me because they would ask me really specific questions. And I was like, did I say that? I did. Yeah. That's kind of smart. Well, that, that was smart. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I said that. I should write that down. <laughs> well, I know we talked about a lot of different things when you were on last time. And if you guys are interested, it's she was on episode 75. If you want to go back and listen to that episode, which I think that you all should. But this book, you have four minutes to change your life. I love that because you talk specifically to a group of people like the complainers who say, I don't have any time to meditate, right? Right, exactly. Which is everybody. I mean, I sometimes feel like I don't have time to meditate. So I'm in that group. I actually am being a really, really, I don't like to say like good, but I've been a boss <laughs> about meditating lately and I meditate this morning. And yeah, anytime that I have a few extra minutes, I, I do it. I absolutely am starting to embrace it and embrace that there doesn't have to be a right or wrong way to do it. Because I was in that camp, like I'm doing it wrong. I'll never be able to do it right. And you say that there is really no perfect way to do it. There's no perfect way to do it. And that's something that I want to get out of the way right away. And I love that you said that every time you find an extra few minutes that you take that time to meditate. For me, meditation just means careful contemplation on a simple thought or an idea, maybe a single thought, if you can whittle it down to that and a time to connect with yourself. So it's really about connection, checking in. And I like to use meditation as a way to transition me from one activity to another all day long. So I might find myself meditating 
10 times a day some days. Yeah. Just, you know, little four minute increments here and there, I'm assuming. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, how I want to back way up. How did you first discover meditation? I first discovered meditation after a shoplifting episode. I was, <laughs> I was <laughs> first of all, what were you shoplifting? I'm safe to say this here on your podcast. I was 15 years old. I was working in a used bookstore and just to back it up a little bit, I had already had a well-established prayer practice. I grew up in a fairly religious household where prayer was very important and it was stressed that it was, was the way to you know, connect with our higher power. So I was, I was into praying and having conversations with my God on a constant basis, but it didn't keep me from shoplifting though. So I was 15 and I was working in a used bookstore and I stumbled upon a copy of Be Here Now by Ram Dass, which Mm -hmm. is now a classic. And I still have that original copy from 23 years ago with $3.33 printed on the spine. And it just captured my imagination. It was beautiful. It was purple. There was a mandala on the cover, the hand-drawn drawings inside. I did not have the money to buy it, uh, but I felt like I had to have it and I took it. And I hope that he would forgive me now because it's been very well loved and used and I've bought many, many copies for family, friends and my own children. But yeah, that's what that's what introduced me to Eastern philosophy, Eastern religion, a different way to worship, a different way to look at the world. And that's when I started converting my my prayer practice to more of a meditation practice, more of a practice of introspection. That's awesome. So I'm I'm reading Elizabeth Lester's Broken Open right now. I've had the book Mm -hmm. forever and never read it. And I'm reading it right now. And she shares a really beautiful story about him. Have you read it? I haven't, no. So, yeah, she was a friend of his. I think that they met because she's the founder of the Omega Institute. I will Mm -hmm. link to that up in the show notes, too, that book, Broken Open. And he had a stroke. And mm-hmm. uh, she talks about her relationship with him. It's a, it's really interesting how they kind of had um, kind of a tough relationship, and then he had a stroke, and kind of their relationship changed. And it was it's a really beautiful story. I, I have a shoplifting story. Can I share it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Please, Please do, because I feel not terrible as light, lightened as yours was. <laughs> but I stole. Oh my god! I I don't I share this with very few people because it's just so embarrassing. So when I was in high school, I was probably the same age, you know, fifteen, sixteen. I had this one friend, Regina, and anytime I ever did something really crazy and dumb and mischievous, it was with she. I think most mm-hmm. people have that friend. <laughs> I had a friend named Roxanne who wore a leather jacket, and I worshipped her, and she was so bad. What so, a name, yeah. too. Yeah, she lived up to that right. name. Okay, so Regina and I were at, like, a CVS or something like that, and we were looking, just, you know, being bored and being teenagers, and we came across the douches, like, not, like, douchey guys, like, <laughs> actual douches <laughs> in the feminine hygiene aisle, never douched before. And we were like, we should douche. <laughs> so we stole douches <laughs> and went back to her house and douched. We did douche privately. I will say that, like, we didn't help each other. But, like, we were on the, like, when we were, <laughs> oh, my God, we were, like, on the other side of the door, like, do you feel anything? <laughs> oh, my like, I'm not sure if so I'm doing funny. it right. Yeah, we ripped off douches from CVS to douche. Did um, you know what they were? My mother used to douche. Yeah, it was like a big thing like in the 70s and 80s, I think. So this was like early 90s when we did it. Yeah, we knew that it was like to clean 
out your area. Like, <laughs> that's all oh, I knew. God. I don't even think I, I think I was probably like spraying my vagina with it, like on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> what a terrible message though. I haven't thought about that probably in 20 years. My mother used to douche and that was my first kind of message that vaginas were dirty and they, yeah, needed, to they needed to be cleaned. And I never have, but I thought many times when I was a teenager, like, should I be douching? Wow. Yeah, we didn't continue That's after a- that. I did not start a douching habit after that, but it was it was kind of funny. And then speaking of douches, I was babysitting my sister's kids. This was probably 10, 12 years ago. They were little then. And we were looking for like something in the first aid cabinet. My nephew was probably eight or nine and he's looking for band-aids or something like that and he comes across a douche that looked like my sister must have had it for years and years and years because like it was all beat up and and he was holding it in his hand and he goes what's a douche <laughs> i was like i don't know did you find the band-aids <laughs> it was Moving all on. beat up <laughs> beat up old douche beat up old douche <laughs> oh my goodness okay moving on okay Meditation. Meditation. <laughs> so this book, I mean, obviously you're not, I don't consider you like the typical, you know, monk-ish type of person. Because I think sometimes really? when they think of, when people think of meditation, they think, oh, I need to sit down for an hour or I need to go on these silent meditation retreats. And, mm-hmm. and that is definitely not you. And I know that there's a lot of self-help and meditation books out there. So what makes yours different? Why would readers be interested in yours over another one? Because just what you said, that isn't me. I am a mom. I have five children. My life is crazy. My kids, the age range is 19, 17, 13, five and two right now. Mm-hmm. And my life is crazy. I'm, I'm very honest about, you know, my every day. I cry sometimes in frustration. I yell a lot in frustration. And meditation is the tool that I use to try at least attempt to find balance and be able to you know get through my day to navigate the everyday. So it's not that I have a meditation practice and my life is beautiful all the time and it's you know I'm sitting on top of a pillow with light shining through my window and I'm looking beautiful and perfect and serene. It's really just a thing that I use to get by and to survive. And I think that that's what tools should be. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't be to get you to a place where you're so disconnected from the real world, from the beautiful chaos that exists. I love my life. I love that it's crazy. But sometimes because I'm someone who is prone to extreme anxiety and sometimes very deep depression, I need something to just deal. Yeah. And that's what my meditations do. And that's what I want to offer people who, you know, aren't aspiring to be a monk. They just want to live their life. I like that you said I use it to get by. I I was listening to, I think it was Elizabeth Gilbert was talking about, I think it was her. She was talking about someone she knew that had gone on a meditation retreat or she'd gone to Bali like Elizabeth Gilbert had done in Eat, Pray, Love. And the Mm -hmm. woman had like decided to stay there and then gone back to the United States or wherever she was for some reason for a short time and was just like, couldn't handle like real life and went Mm -hmm. back to the meditation retreat place. And, or I don't know what it was, you know, a monastery or whatever. (laughs) And said like, I can't handle it out there. And Elizabeth Gilbert was like, that's not what the aim should be. It should be Mm -hmm. for getting the tools to be able to deal with the noise that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis in our lives. 
Right. I'm not trying to escape my life. You know, I love my life. I'm trying to escape the, not even escape. I don't want to feel pain. Nobody does. Right. I don't want to feel like I'm struggling. I know that the struggle happens, but I want to have a way to see that, deal with it, get around it, get over it, get through it without having to leave where I am. And where I am is going to be messy. It's inevitable. Like the kids are destroying my house. Like I can't even tell you what happens here on a daily basis. The two-year-old is killing me slowly. So I need this, I need this tool that allows me to step away, to connect with my breath, to connect with, you know, just who I am in that moment. Who am I? I'm a mom who doesn't want to react in anger. I'm a mom who doesn't want to scream and yell and lose it. I, a mom that wants to be able to return to the situation and find humor in it. So that's what meditation allows me to do. And it also allows me to not feel guilty about it because this regular practice of self love and self care is something that I need to do. And in that time alone helps me to acknowledge that I have mantras that specifically go to this is okay to do. This is a tool that I'm using to love myself and therefore love other people better. So that's what I'm using it for. Mm -hmm. One of the things I love about this book is that, you know, even in just the, the table of contents, you talk about the chapters are different areas of your life that you can meditate on. And I love how each chapter is broken up and you tell a story and and there are mantras that you give suggestions about. And I'm a big fan of mantras because they're short and mm-hmm. to the point. <laughs> it's just a really easy tool. And it's it's easy tool, I think, for people like me who tend to start with being in your head which I know a lot mm-hmm. of my listeners are. So like, let me just read a few of them. So, and and they're all, you know, like four minutes, y'all just start with four minutes to de-stress your life, four minutes to fulfill the dream of great self-esteem, accept your body, discover true happiness, manifest courage, confidence, success, and on and on. And one of the ones that I wanted to jump to, of course, it was the one that I jumped to when I got, do you know what chapter I'm talking about? Which one I jumped to? I have, I have no idea. Okay. Is it, is it going to be grief? No, it was the one about douching. <laughs> I did not write about douching at all. (laughs) Four minutes to douche your life. (laughs) No, you were right. It was was on grief. Um, Shifting from douching to talking about grief. Let's talk about our dead parents. (laughs) You know. Should I just tell everyone? I told Bex right before we started recording that I started my period this morning. So I I am not myself. (laughs) I'm not feeling myself. So I'm a little extra punchy. And yeah, it was funny. I was on a podcast. I was recording a podcast yesterday and we were talking about when, you know, losing my parents lost both of them in the same year. And in between I'm telling stories. So I'm laughing and I'm going back to talking about my parents dying and then I'm laughing again. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, am I a total a-hole? Am I laughing about my parents? Deadly? Are people going to think that? But it's like, it's just part of my, my life is, is kind of like vacillates between horror, trauma, joy, and laughter, like in any given minute. So (laughs) let's do this. That's definitely how life goes. Yeah, for sure. And yes, everyone. So if anyone is on the same cycle as me, any of my listeners, give me a shout out on Instagram. We're cycle sisters. (laughs) Actually, I'm recording this two weeks before it comes out. So if if your period was two weeks ago, cycle sisters. Yeah, I'll I'll be with you in two weeks. Okay. So let's back up a little bit. And because I I really do love this chapter. I was highlighting and I wanted to to read a couple of parts that really stuck out to me because I think that they would be really helpful for the listeners. So for those who don't know 
the story. So can you can you tell us what happened in the span of it was eight months, right, that you lost your parents and each one was a very different circumstance? Yeah, it was, it was actually seven months. So I lost my father after his very, very long battle with cancer, seven years in April of 2013. So that was something, you know, and we've talked about this before. It was something that I was prepared for. We all as a family were ready to let go. He was ready to let go. You know, every holiday was like, this might be the last holiday with dad. And we were all very aware of that and had a very aware of that and had a very open conversation surrounding it. So everybody was very, very sad, obviously, but okay when he passed. Mm-hmm. And then just seven months later, I believe it was November 12th, I got the call that my mother, she was on vacation in North Carolina and uh, suffered a massive stroke. And she was alive and she had been taken to the hospital my sisters and I rushed down there and we ended up spending what would be the last 10 days of her life with her in the hospital. She chose after seven days to be taken off of life support. She was able to communicate that by blinking. Her stroke was so severe that she got something called locked in syndrome. So her entire body was paralyzed except for her eyes. So that's a whole other story. But miraculously, my sister had just watched a movie about this and became very intrigued with the the whole syndrome syndrome and knew exactly what to do. So we created this alphabet for her and we were able to communicate with her, her final wishes. So she, she passed on November 21st of 2013, just seven months later. And that was a shock. I mean, my mother was in the prime of her life. Like during the time she was in the hospital. And then soon after I handled her estate, I was canceling like, you know, appointments for art classes. And, you know, she had a chandelier that was being commissioned and I had to go pick up artwork that she had just purchased and take care of her garden. Like she was a very vibrant, strong, healthy woman. Mm-hmm. So that was a little bit, a lot, actually a lot harder to take. And I'm, I'm still, you know, grieving her very, uh, very acutely now, even and three and a half years later. Yeah. It's such a, an amazing story. And, and I, what I highlighted is in that chapter, when you were talking about her passing away and, and you said, I'm going to quote you on page 169, it was an enormous gift to be able to communicate with our mother in those last days, but I was still left with a tremendous sense of regret. I couldn't even express my grief. I think I blocked it because it would have meant also connecting with my guilt. I judged myself for missing my mother and wanting her back when I felt I hadn't fully appreciated my relationship with her when she was still with us. And then you go on to say, how can we resolve what was unresolved when the person is no longer around? That loss of control adds another layer to the grief. And I think I highlighted that because you can probably hear me flipping through the pages here, Mm -hmm. but I I think I highlighted that because I have totally experienced that with the death of my father, you know, that whole, like, how can we resolve what was unresolved when Mm -hmm. the person is no longer around? And I have found, and I don't know if you experienced this when either of your parents passed away, but I think this is what's going on with me in the present moment with the the death of my father. And I think that this happens for many people when they lose a parent, not everyone, but, and I'm totally making this up. Maybe everybody's like, nope, (laughs) but I felt like, and tell me if you feel this way at all. I have felt like since he died and he just died in October, Mm -hmm. I am beginning to know more about him as a human Mm -hmm. than than I did when he was alive. So instead of, you know, cause for his whole time here on earth, like I only knew him as my father, mm-hmm. I didn't know him as any other identity. And so now that he's passed away and I've started to like 
process all these feelings without him, not being able to have a conversation with him and hearing stories from other people, whether they're stories I probably should hear or not, you know, and cousins and siblings and my mom and and all of these different kind of snippets of and at his service, like meeting his really old friends and, and finding mementos that he had kept all of these years. Like he had 38 years before I was even born and he was this Mm -hmm. whole other person. So I think that's sort of like what I'm grappling with in my grief. And, uh, you know, feel free to jump in if you feel felt any of that with either of your parents. It's a hundred percent. It's a hundred percent correct because what, what I was doing in my life and in my pain and I'll, and, and I'll tell you three months before it was July 29th. It was my son's birthday, my middle son's birthday. July 29th was the last time I spoke to my mom. She walked into my house. She passed me by in my office. She went upstairs, spent time with my son and we didn't speak again until we were in the hospital Mm -hmm. and she had stroke because we had a falling out over the previous incarnation of my book that I was writing, which was more of a memoir. And it was talking more about my mother's affair and how I was a product of that affair Mm. and her choice to keep me, my, her, the father who raised me's choice to keep me. And she felt like that was her secret that I was not allowed to reveal. So we had this huge falling out. We weren't speaking at all. And that's a lot, a lot of where the guilt came from and also the blame. So I, I blamed my parents for everything that went wrong in my life up until the moment they died. Mm -hmm. And what happened was exactly what you said. So my mother was very well loved. She was beautiful. She was extremely giving to, and I'll say this, she was, I love her, but she wasn't the greatest mom. And Mm -hmm. I can say that being a mom, like she didn't make all the right decisions, but you know, who does, but some of her wrong decisions were very wrong. And she, uh, but she was very giving to the community, to her friends. People adored her. She was an artist. She was talented. She, she just like had everything going for her from the surface outside of our house. And I often questioned how she could even have friends because we didn't have that relationship because I always felt like I was someone who was neglected or unloved or abused by her and getting to know her from the perspective of her friends and the people who really loved her and saw not an untrue version of her, just a different part of her was very enlightening to me. And it allowed me not only to forgive her, but to also forgive myself for the hate and regret and the guilt that I felt about myself as a mother, because I saw her for the first time as just this woman who was trying to make do with a life that was handed to her that wasn't great at all. Like she suffered incredibly as a child and through her marriages and she was just showing up in the only way that she knew how. And I couldn't see that from the perspective of being her child and rightly so like she would take care of me. But now I have a forgiveness that doesn't necessarily heal, but I have this forgiveness that I can say, okay, I see you as a woman and I'm okay with you and I appreciate you and I have compassion for you. So mm-hmm. that happens. Yeah. And I think for me, it's, I'm not years in, it's still, I'm kind of like in the thick of that part of like really coming to terms with who he was as a human and as a man and how he walked this earth as a very sensitive soul. So it's like all the puzzle pieces are starting to kind of fall together and the dots are being connected. And within that, I think, has its own sort of like bucket of feelings that's separate but connected to the grief of just losing him as my dad. And I love that you say this on the next page. There's this whole subtitle, Pain That Changes You. 
And you talk about there was the biggest loser trainer that said there's two types <laughs> of pain, pain that hurts you and pain that changes you. And I, I'd never heard that before. And I was like, holy shit, that is so true. And you get to choose. I think that I think that with it, there's a process. It's not just like pain happens and then the next second you pick. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. it's a process, but I love that you say, I believe our feelings wouldn't exist without a higher purpose. It's when we don't attach any positive purpose to our emotions that they become stuck within us. Or when we attach a negative purpose to our feelings, such as believing that we're being punished by God or fate or karma. When we think we deserve our pain or think of ourselves as victims, our emotions tend to fester or spiral out of control. Hell yes. Yeah. See, that's another moment from my book that I forgot I wrote. And I'm like, yeah, that's so yes. smart. <laughs> when someone else reads it, it sounds so good. <laughs> well, yeah. No, it, it's luck. I spent a long time believing that this was my lot in life, that my pain was my lot in life and that I was destined to just suffer and suffer and suffer because of something I had done. I don't know if it was karma, past life, mm-hmm. or just because God didn't love me enough. I don't know what it was, but there was this feeling that everything I got, I deserve. And, you know, and that's very pervasive. I think it's a very pervasive misconception when people say that you are responsible for your own life. You're responsible for what happens to you. And people interpret it as, oh, so I'm at fault for everything that happens to me. And I had to take some time to sort that out. But now I see this power in being able to take the stuff that just happened. It's like, I didn't attract it. It just happened. The stuff that happens and then turning it into some sort of lesson. It doesn't always feel good, but at least I have the power to create something from it. Yeah, absolutely. And then you go on in that same chapter to go over the meditation with it. And then the mantras I love, I choose to feel my pain, but not be absorbed by it. And another mantra, I see and accept the lessons my pain has brought me. So do you feel like, I mean, because I think that when my theory is that we are in the thick of it, I think that like, I want to punch somebody in the face who's like, there's like, what is the gift in all of this? I'm like, off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Give mm-hmm. me a minute. <laughs> so can you talk about like, what is the difference between feeling pain and not being absorbed by it? Cause I think that that's a really, it's a concept that we in the self-help world kind of throw around. So I'd love to kind of touch on that for a minute. What do you think? Well, I say that I allow the pain, I allow the suck, but I don't embrace it. So I'm not trying to get in bed with it and spend a lot of time with it. So I see it. I try to approach it with some sort of objectivity. I allow myself to feel it. I allow myself to cry. I allow myself to sulk a little bit. I allow myself to pull down the shades and Netflix binge a little bit. But I also have a plan for the next step. So it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm going to feel this but tomorrow I'm still going to get up and get dressed and brush my teeth. Sometimes it's like as simple as that. Like I'm going to feel this, but I know that by Monday I at least have to be getting up and getting the kids ready for school. So at least I have some kind of like vision of what's happening on the other side of it where some people just go in deep with no plan, with no, uh, no vision. And then they, make it bigger than it even is. Mm -hmm. They become absorbed by it. They do the downward spiral. They start pulling in all the other things to be sad about and just like heaping it on and heaping it on. And it becomes intentional pain. It's like intentional self-inflicted pain, which, you know, for me, for someone who is prone to depression, that's just not a place that I can go. I need to sort it out. I need to write it down. I need to know 
my next step, I need to have a, a game plan because if I don't, it's like, it's goodbye. It's like, you're not going to see me again because I'm just going to go so deep that I disconnect from the world. Yes. And I, I have been that person who totally gets absorbed by it. And I, you know, another thing that I used to do is that I used to pull people in who would allow me to stay there. Yes. So like I would seek out the people who would coddle me and affirm my victimhood and is like and just my martyrdom, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, it's so bad for me. And oh, isn't aren't they awful for doing this? And I, I think, you know, yeah, like if you get if you if your life gets set on fire, you know, and you're going through the ringer, of course, you're going to spend that time. But I I think that. I got to a point, I mean, my life exploded and then it exploded again. So it was kind of back to back. And and that was sort of my turning point. But I think that even people that just like have one explosion who are like, when you get to a point when you're tired of hearing your own story, because that's where that's where I got. I was like, I'm Mm -hmm. so sick of telling the same story of being such a victim and and people feeling sorry for me. Like at first it was attention seeking and I was like eating it up. But then after a while, I was like. Oh my God. So I think that like, I think for people listening, you have to get to that place where you're paying attention enough, where you know that you're like, are you feeling uncomfortable telling your own story? Are you feeling uncomfortable being a victim? You know, read back email conversations, read back text conversations. Do they feel good to you? And, and it's not about, you know, I I warn people a little bit, like as a caveat, like don't, don't get there and then beat yourself up for it. Like use that as fuel to, like you were saying, take that next step and, and have a game plan. Community is so important for me in this, you know, because my husband, no matter what I say, he totally indulges any of my feelings. So I could just be the saddest app forever and ever. And he would just be like, you're okay to feel this way. <laughs> so I need to have those girlfriends around me who are going to kick my ass a little bit, who are going to call me out and, and say, you know, this is not okay. Or we need to talk this through or, or just to to just call me up and check if I'm good, if I'm okay. And if I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing every day. So community is important too. I have a tendency to isolate myself when I'm feeling really crummy. And that's something that is is also something that can't happen. So I need to reach out. Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask you next is like, in terms of your game plan that you mentioned. So I'm sure. So that's one of them reaching out to people, which I talk about all the time on this podcast reaching out to people who, and it's not just about like, don't post it. I mean, not to Twitter. Like it's really about those select few people who can show up for you. Yeah, no, it's definitely part of my plan. This year, 2017 is my year of asking for help, which is something that is so hard for me. And I know people listening will be able to relate to it's, mm-hmm. it's really hard to be vulnerable and say, I need help. I don't know how to, can you figure this out for me? Yeah. Can you just do this for me? Mm-hmm. And I'm deep into my practice for this year of saying, you know, and it's because I feel good about the way that I show up in the world too. Mm-hmm. It's not like I'm not a giver. It's not like I'm not someone who said yes many, many times. And I'm continuing to say yes. Cause I like to, I don't want this to be my year of no, I did that last year and I was a total asshole. So this year I wanted to be my year of yes. And yes. And also, could you help me with this? And it's turning out really well. And I'm discovering that people love to help. They love giving advice and they really love to help. So Mm -hmm. it's not so hard. Awesome. I love that. The year of asking for help. So you sort of shifting gears, you talk about purpose in your book. And that's one thing I hear from some of the people in my community. And they, they kind of panic. panic. (laughs) And, and it's just because they haven't found their purpose. And, and it, and it is a big deal. I think that as humans, we want to know that we, that our lives matter. So what do you have to say about that? 
I think I said, I hope I said, because this evolves, because I was someone who started out thinking, and Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this too, thinking that I had to have a purpose, like I needed to know what I wanted to do in this world, and I needed to follow that dream. And for a long time, I thought it was one thing, it turned out to be another, and then I was disappointed, and then I felt like I didn't have one. So for me, I feel spiritually, I think that we're all put here for the same with the same purpose and that is to to love and to be loved Mm -hmm. be part of the community we're here to have a human experience so definitely be part of that that human biological experience of connecting with other humans on earth don't isolate yourself and then to learn things which we all do every single day and then take those things that we've learned and share them to teach and that's what I do in my work. I know that's what you do in your work. I feel like we have a responsibility to each other to lead each other to the light, to lead each other to understanding. It doesn't have to be on a grand scale, but if you know something and you see someone who's struggling to learn it, mm-hmm. help figure it out. So, and, and so then with that purpose, it can manifest in a bajillion different ways. You know, you could be a teacher, you could be a grocery store clerk and be living that purpose. It doesn't matter. That's amazing. So I didn't, I didn't even know that you said that, like that, that was your idea of purpose, but that is exactly what I wrote in my dad's eulogy. What I wrote in there was that I think that it was at the very end of his eulogy. And I was talking, cause I was on the plane when I was on my way home after I had gone out there twice. I went out there once when he got really sick, when he was first really sick. I went out there for four days, came home because we didn't know how much longer he was going to have to live. And I ended up turning back around five days later and going back and he died the next day. But on that first trip back home on the plane, I was sitting by the window crying and Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about like what you know, it was the first time I had ever faced really anyone's mortality like that up close and personal. And it really got me thinking about like, what, what is our purpose here in life? Cause I, I think like you, that I don't think that there is just like one thing that we're supposed to do. And, and when, I, when I feel like that I'm living my purpose right now, like that, that's my job that I do to make a living, I start to panic and I'm like, am I doing it right? Like, is this real? am I on the right mm-hmm. path? Is it all correct? And so I have to take a step back and look at like the bigger picture. And that's what I was doing on that, on the plane that day. And I think I, I thought like, you know, looking at the end of my dad's life, like, I think that the reason that we are here is to love each other and be loved and to be of service to each other and that mm-hmm. we're at the end of the day, we're all just walking each other home. And like, what I mean by that is what you were saying too, is like, is these human connections that we have with people and like, sure, it's important to be kind to your barista and all of those things, but it's like these deep, intimate relationships that we have with a very select few people that change over time, you know, cause I don't have the same relationships I did 10, 20, 30 years ago and they change and evolve and they teach us things and from the pain of walking away from them and from the love that we have when we're in them and the mistakes that happened. And that's, I think our purpose. Like if you're doing that, you're doing it right. Yeah. It doesn't matter how it comes out. We have a thousand different people saying the same exact thing that we say. Mm -hmm. It's important that we as individuals touch the people in our immediate surroundings. And that could be our, you know, Facebook friends or our church fellow church members or whomever. It's important that we keep speaking these truths and we keep spreading this message of love and, and understanding and compassion and the lessons learned here on earth, like how to live on this earth. 
because we're here for just a short blip of time. And depending on what you believe, you might have been here long before and you'll, you might live for an eternity. So to really appreciate this time here and soak up the lessons and share those with the other people who have to figure out how to live here. Because yeah. it is an awesome experience. So I'm into that. I'm into taking on that job. And it doesn't matter what it looks like or how it's told. It just matters that we're doing it. So you take some of the pressure off too, because, you know, it doesn't have to be that you're saving all of the refugees. It does. I mean, I think that's wonderful, the people that are, but it's like, I just think people put so much pressure on themselves about finding this true purpose. And yeah, it's just about loving each other and, and all that mushy stuff. So this book, I think everyone needs to run out and get it. And you have some book bonuses and all of these links that we're talking about here on this episode, you guys, yourkickasslife.com forward slash 139. It's really easy. And so tell us what people get if they buy the book. Cause it just came out yesterday, the 28th of February. Yes. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) On Mardi Gras. Is that the most awesome book ever? Yeah. So if they go to bexlife.com slash book, they will be able to pick up two bonuses. Everybody who buys the book gets it, ebook, any kind of, any form of the book. And I'll tell you that I worked just as hard on these, these bonuses as I did the book. So it's a really great value. There is a 14 part, it's called Turned On, Find Your Light. And there's 14 mm-hmm. interviews. There's a workbook that goes with it. You're in it giving a brilliant interview. It was a good interview. I have to admit, like there are some interviews floating around out there where I was not on my game, but I think that that was a really great interview that we did. <laughs> it was really great. And all 14 participants really opened up and it, it really focuses on the people in my life that I admire, that I consider mentors, friends, that I love the way they're doing business and just living their lives in general. So it's a really fantastic group of people. And the other bonus is my 21 day soul cleanse, which is a silly name, but it's, it's 21 different self-care activities to really clean out the muck in your life, energetic and physically. And, you know, it's, it's a, practical applications of my practices. So I think they're going to really enjoy it. It's awesome. Love it. Yeah. So you have four minutes to change your life and go to, you can go to the show notes and there's, I will link up to it if you want to get it on Amazon and then also a link to go get your bonuses as well. You don't want to miss it. Thank you so much again for being here. This is so fun. I want to have you on every week. Can we just do that? <laughs> yes. And thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Again, thanks for being here. And until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. Hey, ass kickers, you know what would help me out so much if you left a rating and review for this podcast. Your Kick-Ass Life podcast will always be free to you and to help me get more awesome guests and to spread the word, it helps tremendously if you leave a rating and a review. Now, they don't particularly make this super easy to do, so I'll help you out a little. If you're in iTunes and you're on your phone, when you are in the podcast app, you need to search for Your Kick-Ass Life podcast. I know, even if you're subscribed, this is how you do it. So when you search for it and you see it come up, click on the cover art, then towards the top where it says reviews, click that, scroll down a tiny little bit, and then click write a review. Stitcher is a bit easier if you're on Android. The easiest way I found to do this is to type into Google, stitcher.com, your kick-ass life, and voila, my podcast should pop up as the first link. Scroll down and click write a review. That's it. Thank you so very much. You have no idea how much it helps me when you do that. All right. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.